Dose is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Steve Krauss, healthcare partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, and Trevor Price, CEO of Oxian Partners and general partner of Town Hall Ventures. The guys talk to leaders from various aspects of healthcare and cover personal stories, entrepreneurship, investing, and have a few laughs, many at each other's expense. City. CityMD is a major player now yeah. in yeah. delivering healthcare. 110 facilities? 115 15. facilities. I and my wife and kids go there. And what I will tell you is, and, and I have the great fortune of working with Dr. Richard Park, and from the moment I met him, I just, I felt like this guy was wired differently. He's Super just, cool guy. You know, really like, mission-driven, amazing ethos. The amazing thing is like, when you first talk to him, and I, I say this with all due respect, but like he's giving up monetization opportunities, right? Sure. Like I, several times I'm like, so how do you monetize that? Of course, right? That's, I ask yeah. the financial questions, you know? Yeah. Came very clear to me that like he, in a very smart way, is able to extract value, but yes. he does so by- Yeah, listen to this podcast carefully because what he says is he's delivering immense value to his network partners, right. the payers, to the patients, right. he's not getting compensated for directly. free at the yeah. time. He's invested a ton of money right. to do it. Now, it's helping his business because right. they want him to be successful, right. but he's not directly monetizing. He's doing it because it's the right thing to do. Right. But they're also not coming back to him next time to negotiate contracts. They're not contract crushing trying his crush contracts, right. which is amazing. Really smart for, and, and like his stories, his life is just amazing. amazing. Very shaped by this, Doctor who, Dr. When, his, when his family was, uh, you know, having challenges, who gave him free care. And yeah. like he God, vividly told that story. One hour photo company to pay for college right. Right. and starting an urgent care business because he has two children who are right. on the autism spectrum. And he was like, I'm not going to be able to pay for health care as an right. ER doc. Right. I mean, it's just like, it's cool. We, you are very lucky that we get to hang yeah. out with these people. Yeah. He's you know, and I'm also lucky I get to hang out with you too, even though I give you a lot of shit. I feel the same way. Thank you. <laughs> I'm a multi-time customer of CityMD here in New York. I would have never my, guessed by looking at you that you needed healthcare. <laughs> my kids are customers. My kids like CityMD. So I'm thrilled to have Dr. Richard Park here, the founder and CEO of CityMD, join us. I think this is the first foray into urgent care. Yeah, we haven't talked about urgent care. Yeah. Despite you know both of us being involved in urgent care business, yeah, yeah. I've been in backer. So it's, I love the industry. So it's going to be fun to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. And so... We're going to touch on that, but I just want to start like you bring it up right in the front of your story on CityMD around being the son of immigrants and feeling like an outsider through a portion of your life. And that part of the reason to create urgent care is to have healthcare be inclusive, not exclusive. So where does that come from? Tell us the Park family story a little bit. All right, sure. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, nice to meet yeah. Steve and, Absolutely. Yeah, and Amy. <laughs> Born and raised in Flushing, and a lot of this is, you never, it's never conscious. You don't know you make the decisions you do. You think you own your decisions. Turns out you really don't. A lot of it is just informed by 
proclivities from, from childhood. So I remember being immigrant family and just never having enough, right? And when your refrigerator turns off every quarter, right, because you don't pay the bills, and the last thing you do is afford healthcare. So I remember falling off a slide when I was in the fourth grade. I fell off a slide and broke my tailbone. And I didn't want to tell my dad because that would cost money. There wasn't health insurance for kids yeah. back then. And after three days, he goes, this is ridiculous. You're clearly not well. You're not able to walk. Let's take you somewhere. So he took me to Dr. Kim. And Dr. Kim was a friend of a friend at the time. He took me to his home, and I remember everything about a lot of the, of the incident. But he took care of me, gave me some medications. And I know now as, a, as an ER doc, there's nothing you can do for a broken tailbone other than weight. But he gave me some pills, which were probably like NSAIDs, Motrin-like medications, and I got better. And as I'm leaving, I asked my dad, how much did that cost? Because I was terrified. I'm not terrified of any, of any injection. I was terrified of how much is that going to set us back? And how much did I hurt the family mm -hmm. by doing a stupid thing? And he said it was for free. And I distinctly remember my dad being taken by Dr. Kim to a corner and spoken to in private so as not to embarrass him. Right? So I'm presuming that he preserved his dignity. That's where he told him, out of earshot of his child, it's for free. So I remember every bit of that. And that informs the type of practice I live the ethos I have, and, and unbeknownst to Dr. Kim, it affected eight and a half million visits. It's part of his legacy that, for him, was nothing. So I remember everything That's an amazingly powerful story. You're Korean? Yep. For those who don't live in New York, there's this amazing dynamic in New York where immigrant communities form where they're almost exclusively from that origin country. So did you grow up in a Korean community? I did. You I grew did. up in a... Korean community or diverse community? I uh, was very, Flushing Queens was a, a predominantly Asian community even at that time. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of Koreans there. And did you go to school in that area? I went to a high school called Stai. I went to Stai. Mm -hmm. Oh, you did? Yeah, I went to Stai. And uh, that's a little more diverse, but not much more diverse. So the interesting thing is Dr. Kim ends up coming to my house last year. Really? Yeah. He's, him and my dad have become really good friends over there. He's 87 today. Okay, I just saw him two weeks ago, actually, at my sister's wedding. But a year ago, he comes back to my house. I'm excited to see him again after all these years. He goes, Dr. Kim, remember taking care of me as a kid? I want to like relate to how, how grateful I was. And he just looked at me and then he goes, huh? And he walked away. <laughs> now, now the point of the story is what for me was so like, it was such a pivotal, like I, every part of that visit I remember and that informs kind of uh, my values today as a, as a doctor. For him it was an everyday thing. He did that with hundreds and hundreds of kids. He worked in a hospital. Took care of the community on the side. So that to him, like, yeah, of course, like, whatever. That's just, that was my job. What did your parents do? Uh, we were uh, merchants. We opened stores, restaurants. So we're going to come back to that because that's interesting. There's a retail orientation retail in your family. Yeah. But was Dr. Kim the launching pad of you becoming a doctor, or did that form later Much on? Much later, yeah. Really? So what happened there is I always started in high school, and people would ask, what do you plan to do after high school, after college? And in my mind, if I had like 10 fruit stores or salad bars in New York City, I mean, that really was my aspiration to have 10 of these fruit stores or salad bars in New York City, and I've made it. And uh, after high school, I didn't go to college, I opened up a one-hour photo store. And there my dad said to me, you know what? Wait, wait, wait hold on, so you, you chose not to go to college, or it wasn't uh, a I choice? I took a year off, took a year, a year okay. off. I couldn't, right, so we couldn't afford. The plan was open up a photo store, sell it, pay for college. Nothing works according to plan, as you guys well know, right? <laughs> I had a one-year exit plan. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to build a business and sell it in a year. One year. Okay. I love it. I was 18. You got to love the naivete. Oh, it's so good. 
but scholarships were not available for you. That was not an option. No, I, well, I didn't know how to. I you didn't know how to navigate the system. Interesting. And so during that year, my dad said to me, son, I see you give away the entire store, okay? So I opened that he came to work. He goes, and I've thought this for a long time, and this is not a knock on you, but I don't think you belong anywhere near business. <laughs> That's just not gonna work for you. I just, and this is not a criticism. You know, in the store, I met a guy named Bert Bell, a famous uh, physician who's recently passed away and got me into Einstein. So I ended up in medicine. And I remember my dad telling me, when you go into medicine, you're giving yourself your life into the service of others. Are you ready for that? And I said, I'm ready to sign up for that. And that's so, what Dr. Kim did, that's what we did. And you know, at CityMD, our heroes are the Chen Meds of the world, the Caremores of the world, old-fashioned Dr. Kims that are out there in mass that have been forgotten and larger their voices not heard. It's the values, those values, they haven't been able to scale and have all the, all the sophistication of finances and HR and everything else. But the values that physicians or healthcare of old had, that's really precious. And I think that story, those values need to be retold, not forgotten. I want to get to the Chens and the Caramores and the CityMDs, but I want to go back again. You're a pressure cooker of a high school. This is public high school in New York City that caters to very, very driven, very smart, in many cases, immigrant families that take this route into a magnet high school versus some of the other high school opportunities. You then go to Wharton undergrad. Undergrad. The bastion of undergraduate business schools. How did you get from the photo store to there? Yeah. I got in as a high school student as I graduated, and then you can defer here. Oh. You can't defer two years, so I almost, it was like this close to like going to college. It was a decision, like I was at the store and then do I go or not go? See, I don't know what's gonna happen. It's, it's gonna fall apart, I go. So I remember it was- Did you sell the photo we, business? Did you pay? We ultimately did. And that and, paid for college? And we opened a second one on 77th and Lex. So I'm going to college. First one was 82nd and 2nd Avenue. And then 77th and Lex, it's right across from Lenox Street Hospital. And in that building fortuitously, Dr. Bert Bell lives and he comes and walks in. And at that time I'm figuring, what do I do? Especially my dad saying you're not gonna. Incredible. And so it's, it's just all these little things. You have no control of your lives, all these little. So one hour photo is exactly the same thing I'm doing today. It's one hour medicine. It's, it's identical in concept. It's no so different. Wait, I think a lot of our listeners are relatively young. They don't and, understand and photo They don't understand stars. that you had photos printed and you took film canisters in. This was a photo printing shop, not selling cameras and hardware. Right, one hour photo oh, development. That's amazing. And that so, is amazing. And again, why did I do that? Why was I so comfortable opening a photo store? Because all throughout my life as a child, dinner table conversation would be, son, look at all the garbage outside that store. Did you see all the garbage outside that restaurant? You know what that means, Rich? I'm like, I have no idea. That means a lot of business. A lot of garbage outside equals a lot of business. So I'm looking at garbage outside stores. That's a great location. That, that restaurant is doing sucky. I don't know why, but there's no garbage out there. There's two bags. It's not going to make it. So why did photos make it? Uh, because that was the in thing at that time, right? So it's retail. and <laughs> So it. we had, with the restaurant business, that was miserable. And that close. So we've done a lot of opening stores, building, putting sheetrock up. And, yeah. and so this was very natural. Now, I wish I was born into a real estate family or a finance <laughs> family. It'd be completely different. Yeah. But you weren't. But I weren't. That was, that's the card you're dealt. So you go to Albert Einstein. Do you practice afterwards? You're an ER doc? I'm an ER doc. I trained at a hospital called Long Island Jewish, which is now today part of the Northwell North system. Well, yeah. And again, there, you know, we have 600 providers, of which 100 are partners. 
a lot of them came from Northwell. We were all colleagues and residents. You mean at CityMD, there's City 600 MD. providers. So let's put a whole bunch of stuff together and dive in on ER. So you have a retail background, right? You have a one-hour convenience background. I think it's a retail entrepreneurial jump, it's okay, without fear background. Yep. And then you go into the emergency department. And of course, urgent care is a direct and front and center attack against the emergency department of large hospital systems, correct? Right. You know, it, it is an alternative to that. It is an alternative. What made you choose emergency med, actually? I mean, you could have been any kind of doc. What, what made you choose that? Right. So either surgery or emergency medicine and the sort of democratization that the ER represented. Everyone comes in, you treat them regardless of ability to pay, ability to do a lot of different things. Uh, to travel, to medical missions. It just seemed like the most blue-collar generalist out there. And that attracted as a direct impact many times, not all the times, of action versus result and taking care of it. So it just seemed to check all those boxes. You don't pick it, it picks you. Life. It's for adrenaline junkies, though. Yeah, it doesn't strike me that you're, but you're a pretty calm guy just looking at you. You're not, you know. Wait, wait a second. He decided to defer college to, run a to start store. a one-hour photo yeah, okay. store to sell it in a year to pay for college. Maybe not that that's a fairly That's <laughs> a fairly risky move, right? And I remember thinking that. In order to do that, at 16, I started working at a one-hour photo store. So I've always been a little bit of a planner. Like, I'm always, like, what's the next step? Okay, to do wow. that, to pay for college, I got to do that. Okay, do that. I can't just do you don't just open a photo store, you gotta work it. So I worked. Interesting. When you started as an emergency med doc, did you think that that was what you were gonna do for your career? I loved every bit of it. I still love emergency medicine. And when so, did you realize that you were gonna do something different? So in 2005, December 2010, we started CityMD, our first location in the city. But in 2005 was my first foray into urgent care. We built a small, it's called StatMD, and 1,400 square feet, built it, some partners. And I have two children, two uh, autistic children, two boys with special needs. Uh, my younger one's nonverbal, my older one has a lot of other psychiatric challenges. It was merely the first office was never gonna be able to take care of my other children. Mm. Love my job, let's do that. And if I have one office on the side that sort of scroll it all away, it'll take care of my kids. That was really the genesis. There was financially, no I mean, not medical, financially. Take financially care. take care yeah. of my children. And what you learn there so everything has like an avalanche. There's no strategy. It just happens. Life unfolds and you kind of make left turns or right turns along the way and you find yourself somewhere. And I realized, yeah, I like primary care. I gave everyone my cell number in New Hyde Park. I came in. You became Dr. Kim there to a certain extent. I did. And the interesting thing there, which I realized later, is patients would come in, see me, and you look, I'm relatively young now. But I looked like I was 20 back then, and <laughs> yeah. the site didn't look particularly you know, impressive, in fact. But yet, I would have patients call me years later, because no one texted back then, and said, Dr. Park, you saw me for a short throat. You don't, probably don't remember me, but I have a question. My mom has cancer. What do you recommend? Who do you recommend I go see for her? Working in the ER, you know who the good doctors are that technically are competent. You also know the doctors that harass you as an ER doc because they care for their patients. They'll call you every 10 minutes, Rich, what's the potassium? While they're a pain to you while you're working, that's I appreciated that yeah. my mom, that's a doc I want for her. You also know the doctors that promise to see their patients in the ER and then never show up and badmouth them behind their back. So you know who's competent technically as well as good values and I was able to match them. And that's the beginning of referral management 
There was no strategic you know, MLR. There was no strategic narrowing network. It was just, I know the perfect person for you. And how do you take that concept and scale that? So not only is now the best doctor, best doctor for your particular need that matches your whatever your idiosyncrasies are, because not every doctor is right for everyone. Some people need more handholding, some people have to be direct, all sorts. So how do you mix and match it? And then, not only for patients, but for payers, for society, how do you decrease total cost of care? It's really a version of rational rationing. How do you create networks that are high performance, high value, good for the patient, Number one. Number two, also good for society. Urgent care can be the first touch point for someone. The argument is that it is in many ways a more effective, safer, less expensive first touch point for the healthcare system than an emergency department. Right. The difference is, is that urgent care, unless you are an urgent care system that's affiliated with the health system, if an urgent care system is independent, you can actually cultivate and determine the referral patterns to the right doctors. Aligned with patients right. and payers, whether you're government, employers, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why our referral list has 11,000 uh, physicians in it, and we have NPS scores on all of them, as well as, this is our referrals, the specialists that we refer to, as well as how quickly they pick up the referrals. And you know, as we get more sophisticated, we know who's in network, out of network. There's a lot of information on the back end requires data that the employers have. and that, You were doing that in 2010? You were building that whole database infrastructure? We actually built a CRM called Aftercare. Yeah. So all the stuff that happens after the patient leaves, you have to handhold it. And there's so many things that happen afterward. So when you're payer aligned, your number one job at that time is to do ER diversion. It turns out to do ER diversion really well. There's a lot of things that have to happen. If you don't miss one of them, it doesn't work. And one of them is referral management. You can't ER divert properly unless you have referral management. But it sounds like you started CityMD with a much broader view of the potential than a lot of urgent care operators. Like I think when our listeners or Americans think about urgent care, they think about the box that's often near a subway and a strip mall and they're thinking about going to get their kid's laceration checked out or if their kid has a, you know, staying home from school, make sure they don't have the flu, right? It sounds like you were thinking about sort of population health management or almost taking risk and managing care is that fair or did you start actually as a box urgent care to begin with? So care coordination, not because there were risk or gain share or no one talked pop health in 2010. It right, just was right, not the right, lexicon. Right. A few years later it did. That was to take care of patients. Because after they leave the office, there's these referral challenges to take care of patients. And so your business profit motive then was that you'd get repeat visitors. Was that the business profit no, motive? Taking care of patients to the right place, getting them safe. We're keeping people out of the ER. That was the main motive, and that was our... Um, but you weren't getting paid for that at that point. No, we were not, but that's why my dad says you don't belong in business. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't literally that you thought if you take care of patients, they'd have a good, positive view of CDMD and come back. It was just merely you were operating from a physician's duty of care. I would have patients come in with chest pain, 60-year-old chest pain. I'm nervous. Go to the ER. They refuse. Okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to call my cardiology friend. I just spoke to him. You were there. He's ready to see you right now. I'll call a cab. I'm going to pick you up. I see them go in the cab. I physically watch them go in the cab. He's going to doctor, the cardiology friend, right? He doesn't show up. Aftercare was to make sure our patients get safe care. Because after they leave the office, there's so many things that can go wrong. And so that was the nidus of this. It turns out when you do that, and the referral and the, what generates after that is very population health oriented. 
and then it became evident. So I'm a recipient of aftercare. I'll divulge my own situation that happened a couple months ago. I have a family history of lung cancer. I've never smoked, but I had a persistent cough. I went to CityMD, a couple blocks away from where I live. I had a chest x-ray. And in that chest x-ray, they determined I did not have any lesions or lung cancer. Unbeknownst, this was not what I was being tested for, but someone at aftercare, CityMD aftercare, thought that I had what's called cardiomegaly, which is a swelling of the heart. They called me the next day. They explained the situation. They said, you need to see a cardiologist, make sure this gets checked out, and say, we know from data that the clinical outcomes and the cost to go see Dr. A versus Dr. B are better. We're gonna to try to steer you to Dr. A. And how much does that get into what are called Stark laws? Sure. Referral issues. So the answer is yes. So Trevor, yeah. ideally we'd have Aetna insurance or whatever your carry of choice. And these are the in-network doctors, cardiologists, they're ranked by our MPS scores and how quickly and how well they do. Yep. And Aetna has a preferred narrow list that we'll, we'll take into consideration. This is all automated. This is all not automated. a call center person. It's this all is automated. all automated. Right. We have some employers that have super narrow networks, right? So Aetna might be the TPA or Blue Cross or whoever they are the TPA, but their employer is this employer and they actually have, they're a sophisticated employer and they want these five cardiologists. That's bullseye. So. We do that. Does CityMD make money doing that? Do not. They do not. They do not. Aren't you doing what everyone's trying to do in healthcare and making money doing? We have over 90 people care coordinating right now in a room of dashboards and reds and they're putting out fires to make sure that all this happens. That's just a small part of it. It's the ER diversion, the results. There's a whole bunch of litany of things that has to happen. So when you do get a GI doctor, we gotta make sure you go there. We tell you, listen, you're gonna get a GI appointment and uh, you may get scoped. The doctor's in network, but make sure the anesthesiologist is in network. Because we have so many patient histories that 600 bucks for the scope and 4,000 for the anesthesiology fee. There's a lot of things. Orthopedists, you send them in network, but they do PT and pain management out of network. So we, our job is to identify those bad players. And that takes time, because we get a lot of these complaints and we take people off the list. So at what point in time does CityMD start doing population health or, or population-based, value-based deals with employers or? How do you get paid today? You get paid? Indirectly hired. We tell payers, not all urgent cares are alike, okay? We are 15 minutes from almost every human being in this area. We're a logistics company many, for you. How many clinics do you have now? We have 115. But it's not the number, it's the density, right? We're, we're logistics, we're a brick and mortar at least. 15 minutes from almost every human being from the tip of Long Island to Bergen County. And we are aligned with the patient and can institute, this is one system, a payer need, whether it's quality metrics. And so today, that's the value proposition. We're helping total cost of care. Now we gotta prove that out with data and there's more work to be done for sure, but we know we are. Not every provider is the same, right? Why would you think every urgent care is the same? We're different and therefore our rates are justified. Got it. So you get paid fee for service, but you get paid higher rates for your outcomes. We don't want to be the top, but we're not bottom. We're Got it. high middle. That's where you want to be. That's and you're only in the New York metropolitan area? Essentially. We're in Washington State to a lesser degree, but New York, New Jersey, that's a focused plan. Now there's other opportunities that will... How many patients do you say you touch a year? We've seen about three point, a little over 3.4 million unique patients in this market wow. in this time, and there's only about 10 million people here. So you've touched a third of the market. Yeah. Cumulatively. 
Sorry, that's unique? Unique, yeah. unique okay. patients. That's amazing. So let's talk about aftercare as a second. You described it as a CRM. It's obviously technology-based, yes? Yeah, it is technology-based, but techno it's more the data. It's who the good providers are. It's the narrow network, who are the good actors. Yeah. Our job is to ER divert and get people to the right place. We believe that is the value. It's creating a narrow network. So if that's data and, and technology that's then fed through a call center, right? Because I received an email, but then the email had me call, and then I got diverted to a nurse who talked to me. Do you ever conceive of spinning that off into a standalone company? Because I would think almost most major healthcare providers in the country are looking for something like that, right? That's an in-demand capability. Potentially in the future, we've always talked about aftercare, that platform being, it's basically what MSOs are supposed to do, right? IPAs are supposed to do. Yeah. The power here is it's your, you're the provider and the care coordinator. And I think that patient trust is important. We're in the, CDMD is in the business of serving kindness. When you do that, you get their trust influence healthcare decisions. Did you ever face failure at CDMD? Was there ever a point where you you did not see a path for the business to survive? We bootstrapped. You know, about eight years ago, I couldn't even get a credit card. I had a bankruptcy from all the failed things to my parents and couldn't even get a credit card. And on 86th Street, I used to walk up and down 86th Street when I was a kid and thinking one day I'm gonna have a photo store on 86th Street, because that's where 86 Street Photo, Fromex, and, and uh, O. Henry's, the bastions, the big powerhouses of Virgin, a one-hour photo. And so 86 Street, first and second, I found the location, and I remember Mr. Glick, he, he managed the building. Mr. Glick is a landlord. He's a, he helped us start. I said, Mr. Glick, you know about my bankruptcy. It's amazing that you didn't even consider giving me a lease, but I have other bad news. I have no money. He said, how much do you need, kid? I, said, I don't know, $300,000. That's what we were short. And then he asked, uh, what interest rate? I said, um, I'll give you 20%. <laughs> okay. He said to me, he said something like, don't be ridiculous. 6%. So he gave me a 6% loan. And that's how you launched the first business? Yep. Wow. I tell that story all the time because I'm so thankful. Everyone has help. There's three parts of this. So the second part was Mr. Good, that's it? Like, is there paperwork to document this? And he said, you are not smart. You're borrowing money from me and you want documentation? So you provide me documentation. And then to ask to answer your question about failure, like we, we run out of funds, that's not, doesn't do a whole lot. So probably like three or four months into, I gave him a call back and that's when he hung up on me. He said, you'll figure it out, kid. <laughs> but to this day, we, we thank him. And wow. we contribute to his. And when did you raise your first round of outside capital? So my first experience of urgent care was 2005. Stan, that's where you kind of cut your teeth. You don't learn all that stuff. And then 2010, when I opened urgent care, the, the second, the first, City MD. It still turned out my one of my best friends is a guy named Steve Kang. He's a computer scientist. And I asked Steve, what I need from you is a list so I can call patients efficiently. Because right now I have to make 20 clicks to get to a name. I just need you to, for goodness sake, don't make this complicated. Just get me an Excel sheet. Suck out the data somehow and get me an Excel sheet. And he said, Rich, no. That's not what you need. It's too fragile. I know what you need. Spent three months and he built a CRM on top of our EMR because it didn't exist. And that's what we call aftercare, the software. Hmm. I lost track of the question, Trevor. You were asking something. Funding. When did you take funding? Funding. So it was all bootstrapped between a whole bunch of friends of ours and all ER docs that worked together. We all bootstrapped and we put money How in. How many centers did you open before you took funding? Uh, we had eight before Profits. December 2013. All funded off of profits. Profits. And everyone came in. We had, then ended up 
inviting other physicians in and they all put in cash smart. How'd you learn? You obviously learn how to deliver care. Through your family, you had an orientation towards retail, seeing where the trash was. But a place like CityMD requires very sophisticated marketing. Yeah. Retail, retail selection. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, a, like, it's, a, it's a retail store. How'd you it's learn that? And did you screw things up along the way? You know, at that time, you could throw a dart on a map and still succeed. I mean, there was very It was very early days in emergent care. Yeah, yeah. Right. So how do we, it's the right team members. It's amazing. So had I not known Steve Kang, I don't think this would be the same place. Number one, Nadal Shami, another doctor that just, just got it. He just knew how to process things, get things operating. Cause I couldn't operate myself out of paper bag. He just knew how to get things efficient and use metrics and NPS. Like I never heard these terms. And then Calvin, another friend of mine, he was our, he was a chief brand officer. All that branding and marketing was internal. He changed our logos, he changed the way everything looked. Everything was internal through friends that came in. And it's just right chemistry. David Shi, our chief medical officer. I think urgent care is probably one of the most consumer-centric healthcare experiences, right? And so I'm just curious, as we talk now a lot about, and we've invested at Bessemer a lot in good consumer and healthcare, but our industry is so far behind when it comes to consumer satisfaction, consumer experience, uh, the retailization. Like, what have you learned? Like, what are the top three lessons that you've learned? When we did one hour photo, I'll give another long story, one hour photo, everyone said, it's too fast. No one's going to, if we drop the photos and you get it the next day, who would want it in one hour for double, triple the price? I think what people will always opt for ease. Water will flow to the lowest point. It's just forever. Whatever is easy, fortunately, unfortunately, gets popular. So making things fast and easy and convenient. You save one click, you're going to win. Number two, in healthcare at least, everyone has a plan. Everyone knows what has to be done, but no one's aligned to do that. So having the right theology or alignment is really important. So we believe that our people first, patient second, payers third. That's the order. My dad used to tell me, God, country, family, man. That's the hierarchy of which you must follow. Same thing. People, patients, pairs. Providers, much lower down. People, patients, pairs. And once you follow that, so when people, patients, pairs, they'll go for fast. But you don't give your kid candy every time you ask for it. When you make access so easy, it can get irresponsible. Yeah. So how do you do responsible and easy? And that's the trick. You were talking about earlier in the podcast is how you help manage utilization. But what you're talking about here is that you, the risk of that is overutilization, right? Right. Can you scale aftercare to service others? Yes. But it has to be aligned with people, patients, and pairs. And aftercare is only as good as the provider trust with the patient. And so when you marry the two, it's really, you can't divorce the two, we feel. The patients have to trust you because you're trustworthy. It's the values that we've forgotten. And that's why the Chen Meds of the world are going to slowly, and they care more, they're going to be able to get patients to the right place because they're properly aligned and they can influence patient decisions. We have to get people to the right place. We have to be trustworthy. And that's what's going to help save healthcare. But the difference is, is they're doing that because they're taking capitated risk. You're doing it in a fee-for-service environment, which is... They it's have almost a, benevolent. They have, a, they have a business and mission orientation. Like their mission happens to be supported by their P&L. Yours is not necessarily that way. Your mission is overriding in some situations your P&L. Our superpower is to make other people much better. We can put someone else on steroids. 
So yes, we do get some indirect benefits by having stabilization of our rates. We provide value. That's such an interesting. They're not right? going to kill you and get rid of yeah. you, right? You're a friend. Yeah. But you haven't tried to monetize it. He is indirectly. That's his point. They well, don't. Well, I know, I know. They I don't know. slash he, his he, rates for everything. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's he's brilliant. getting. 10 bucks per person per visit more than you'd get at MD Med Express, it sounds like. Or whatever it is, that number right. dollar amount. We right. just talked about the consumerization of healthcare. We just had a huge deal announced, which, you know, CVS Aetna is supposed yes. to get to the front door of healthcare. They have Minute Clinic. They're trying to retailize your healthcare. Like, what's your take on that? I got to ask. Well, I don't know. So that's, they're smart people. You listen to Troy Brennan and all these guys speak. They're smart. They have, you talk about being logistics. Okay, well, they have us beat hands down. I mean, talk about the operative logistics and the number of visits. They can upend this. They can't put it. I know everyone is sort of um, cynical. Cynical. But uh, listen, they're smart people, unlimited capital, incredible head start. You should not discount CVS, I don't think. Mm, interesting. Do you think people think about CVS and Walgreens as a place to go get primary care and primary care equivalent? Or do you think it's a place where they go get processed foods and pick up a prescription along the way. Probably the latter now, but it doesn't mean that they can't evolve. Right. They hired three people from Chen Med and listen, they can hire anyone. They also could just buy, right? So I sit here and look at the landscape, like who doesn't want to buy a city MD? My goodness, Optum, if you were Walmart and you could, we talked about this with One Medical, I'd maybe look at this model even more than a One Medical model if I were Walmart. City MD serving a broader population for sure. Totally. Less skewed. A hundred percent. Yeah. Listen, if I told one of you guys that you, you broke your ankle, you broke your knee, your knee fixed, you should go to this doctor. You may not listen to me because you guys are more sophisticated. You're the part of the 1% or the Steve's. super one. Right. But <laughs> I have holes in my sweater, yeah. man. But when the average human being doesn't have 800 bucks in his bank account and they're in Jackson Heights and we say, you should go here versus there, there, we'd have their voice. So it's population. Population is power. And that's the density. I was a class president in high school. And when I was like the president, people were like, who the heck is this guy? Like, who is he? Okay. Can't get a date. Not a single sport. Like two left feet. Like no one. But you know what? It's Thai. There's more nerds. There's more of us unpopular kids than there are popular kids, by definition, right? That's what CityMD is about. We are going to always be Go back inclusive. to the beginning. It's and it wasn't even intentional. It's just natural instincts. You make decisions based on, you don't even know why. So it's a different model. It is population-based. And it is important that you take care of everyone. And that's a lot of different flavors. So let's talk a little bit about the whole growth strategy. You build eight to ten clinics on your own, you and your friends, and you're reinvesting profit, then you raise money from private equity? A minority investment in December of 2013. Now we had eight locations, Premier Care, another operator in Long Island, which we merged. We mm. took it all together, and we had 20 locations in December 2013. Doc, entrepreneur, clearly like beyond mission-driven, and you're dealing with the bastion of capitalism, right? private equity firms, what's that like? And how have you found working with private equity as it relates to your mission and your calling? What I've been told about you, two things, is, is you are the cultural standard, you're a cultural bearer at CityMD, and you go to work to, the economic return for what you do is to be given away. That is what I've heard about you. So that's pretty different than private equity. So how does that work? So that's why finding the right partner is so important, um, especially for mission value-minded individuals. And so 
we went far and wide. We spoke to a lot of people, and our premise is, when you serve kindness and people trust you, you can influence healthcare decisions. You have to buy that, right? And you'll find people, they'll ask me, Rich, if you lost money serving kindness, would you still do that? Now, there's only a few people that ask you that because everyone else is thinking, the minute I get 50.01% of you, you're out of here, right? They're, they're looking to oust you. But when people ask legitimate questions, okay, then you know you might have someone here. And so we had found a partner that says you serve kindness, you influence healthcare decisions, and that actually can be monetized because you're going to be able to save money by getting into the right. Yep. TJ Carella. TJ Carella, Amor Kronfel, yep. and Insan Huang. Those are the. Uh, do you agree? Because that is what we're built. If you come and do something different, you're going to find it culturally impossible to revert. That's how we built this place. Mm -hmm. And that's what the doctors and every staff member has been brought up to believe. And to go against that, there's going to be... So you have to understand that unless you really believe in that premise, this is not the right company for you. Because if you try to undo it, even by yesing me to death and undoing it, I'm telling you, it's, it's going to be really hard. How many private equity firms? I mean, obviously, yeah. you chose Warburg. You felt that they met that standard. I know those guys are great. You don't have to name names, but how many other private equity firms that you met with do you think actually I think got it? Probably two or three. It's really cool. You also must be one of the bigger retail real estate operations in New York, I would assume. I mean, in terms of like number of facilities, right? And New York's not known as a friendly, mission-driven real estate market. Like, what's that been like? I mean, you, you have a lot of facilities. How big's your square footage usually of each facility? Typically three to 6,000. So in okay. the city, close to 4,000 is sort of like a sweet spot. Okay. So you have like 500,000 square feet of real estate. Yeah. Right. Probably. Correct. Probably a little more. A little more. But... And the value proposition for an ER doc to work at CityMD is it's just a better quality of life? I mean, I think we heard it today, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's... <laughs> the culture. Yeah. So because we're ER diversion, and we're soliciting higher acuity, you can't just take anyone. So we have a 10 interview to one hire. When you get hired at CityMD, we don't want, so you're burned out. We, we, yeah, you hate the ER, no, it's, it's hard, right? You're burned out, you want something easier, we're not gonna hire you. We'll lead you on. That's not the person. This is a practice, okay? Yeah. Okay, if you're burned out, we don't want burned out people. This is a practice, and a hundred of us are now stakeholders, right? This is a physician practice. The average hire gets three hours of interviews. We watch you for bedside. In our simulation lab, we'll give you 10 mock patients because we do this nonstop. And we watch you interact with the patient so we kind of gauge your NPS-ness. We watch you suture and splint. We give you 10 EKGs and 10 X-rays. And we watch you reason through that. Hmm. You can have a 100 NPS score. You can't reason through safely EKGs and X-rays. We can't hire you because we are soliciting higher acuity patients from the environment. Yep. When we talk about it, it affects everything we do. So our providers, providers matter. You can have every CRM and aftercare. You can have every process correct. If you don't have the right patient, the right providers, irrelevant. If I ask you how many per diems and locums and how many part-timers, if you have a lot of part you can't have part-times and locums in a practice like this. It does not work. You cannot be high acuity. It's not possible. So there's so many things that have to happen right to do your diversion. And all of those things tend out to be very population health oriented, it yeah. turns out. Fascinating. It only happens when you're a patient and payer line system. Thank you for coming yeah, in. Yeah, what a great company. Thank what you. a great thank story. You. Steve, so nice to yeah, meet you. Yeah, you too. Appreciate you it. too. Yeah, yeah. Awesome company. Trevor, thank you for everything. Though. Yeah, my pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to A Healthy Dose. Please subscribe through iTunes, and if you have any suggestions for topics or guests, please tweet us at A Healthy Dose Pod. Yeah.